passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back here to Post Wrestling and joining us, I mean, maybe our guest of the year so far for 2020. He's been maybe the most uh, important guest that we have had uh, this year, returning Back to the post-wrestling airwaves. He is Dr. Alex Patel, who joins Way and I tonight. Uh, Dr. Patel, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. I'm good. Um, yeah, I'm working this week, so it's been busy. But yeah, no, I'm doing well. Thanks. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you a lot for uh, for taking some time to chat with us and answer some of the questions of the listeners. I know a lot of people had been asking us uh, to have you back on here. And, you know, we, we can talk about um, certainly many different uh, subjects, but uh, let's just start off with kind of just an update uh, with you of how things have been going, uh, primarily the last couple of weeks where here in the province of Ontario, I mean, it seems to be like things have been uh, going in the wrong direction. Yeah, no, they certainly have. Um, last couple of weeks, we've seen a massive increase in the number of cases that we've had. So we we had started at one point down to almost nobody and uh, we're back as full as we've ever been. So we've had a slow trickle, you know, maybe one or two cases a day. But um, as you know, or, or as you may be aware, most people who have COVID who end up in the ICU are there for quite a while if they, if they don't uh, sort of succumb to their illness right away. So we're slowly starting to fill up. Um, we've had to divert patients to other hospitals because I'm in, in, in probably what's the hardest hit area of I, one of the hospitals I work at is the hardest hit area in the Ontario region. So we've already started to send people out. Uh, just today, we had a 19 year old kid who was quite sick with COVID that we had to send out. So it's been long days, a um, lot of COVID again. So it's definitely picked up to, I, I would say, above levels that we saw maybe uh, at the early onset of the first wave. And I would imagine that, you know, it's it's a concern in the U.S. and something that, you know, that we, we look at in Canada is just passing Thanksgiving. Is that something that's that's looked at as, you know, a, a triggering effect to the, these giant um, spikes in, in cases of, you know, people that maybe either thought that it was safe to get together with family? Uh, what, what are some of the, the causes that are being linked to this this big surge? So we think the major cause is uh, indoor gatherings, whether it's small private indoor gatherings or larger scale. And certainly Thanksgiving, 
qualifies Halloween are probably the two biggest more recently. And when you look at uh, the effects of this, you have to understand that it's not as if you have Thanksgiving today and the effects tomorrow will be seen. Right. Uh, you have someone attend this, you have somebody else get the infection typically takes about five days. Then they start to develop symptoms and they don't get sick typically till day seven to 10 into their illness. So you can see a protracted course almost two weeks later where you start to see the full effects of what happens. So uh, I think what we're seeing is a large effect of a, a number of things, but but one of the predictors has been larger scale gatherings probably driven by Thanksgiving and Halloween. You know, overall, I'm, I'm curious, like from your perspective, do you think the public is taking this virus as seriously now as they were initially when, you know, Tom Hanks, uh, Rudy, like the the dude from the NBA, you know, like it felt like there was a real shock of uh, around COVID at the time that I don't know if is there anymore, especially after perhaps, you know, for, for us in Toronto, at least a bit more of a mild uh, numbers throughout the summer. How do you feel like, how serious do you think the public is taking it right now? I think the public, um, and I don't just think it's the public, I think even politicians, even those in charge, uh, I, I think did suffer a little bit of pandemic fatigue. So I think uh, initially everyone was very gung-ho and we did a really good job in the first wave. We were far underestimates um, for all of the uh, various you know, estimates that we were seeing in terms of infection. That has not been the case recently. So we've been way off in terms of what we saw. If you look at the modeling, uh, we were thinking we'd be around 1,500 to you know, maybe somewhere around uh, a thousand cases a day. Now the projections have gone up to almost 6,000 cases a day is what they're projecting into December. So clearly uh, we're way ahead of our, our target, which means that whatever we were thinking in terms of social distancing, in terms of the various um, measures that they enacted by retracting some of the indoor dining have not been effective. And I think a lot of that is that people uh, have been suffering from this uh, lockdown or, or not seeing people for a long time. Uh, I think they're starting to realize that this is not something that's going to go away. So they're starting to sort of push the boundaries with what they're they're able to do. I think what really happened, though, was in the summer and towards the tail end of summer, the numbers dropped significantly. And people largely, I think, went back to, to doing mostly their normal uh, way of life. And I think they just haven't come around to cutting that off yet, um, which is probably, you know, what should have been done a, a few weeks ago. So I think it's that that drop in caseload that people got accustomed to sort of going back to their normal life and then uh, have kind of just kept up with that instead of uh, reinitiating lockdown procedures. But again, it's not just the public. It's it's from all levels of government as well. We're also talking about a period now where, I mean, even operating, you know, at like when numbers were a bit lower, um, a lot of businesses were still suffering throughout the entire year. And um, it's one thing I suppose to ask somebody to close for a month or two, but now People are obviously, you know, still very much feeling the effects even more so of uh, uh, a dwindling economy as a re- result of this. Um, so where do you feel like how do you how do you feel like the government should be able to communicate like the dangers that still very much exist while at the same time? Um, <laughs> what can be done about alleviating like all these uh, economic stresses that are that people are feeling? It's hard, right? I mean, on one hand, you have a very real economic stress, you have stress to mental health and, and all other things that, that accompany a severe lockdown. On the other hand, though, you've seen that, that when the lockdown is restricted, you can have uh, large case spikes. And um, one of the models that's been proposed is something you may have heard of called a hammer and dance model, which means that 
essentially when caseloads are rising, you do a hammer approach lockdown to get it under control. Then you ease off and kind of stay with the caseload, recognize that it's never going to go to zero, but you kind of keep it in a comfortable range and use the hammer more uh, every time you get a spike up to hit it back down. Uh, targeted lockdowns are probably another way to go. Um, certain areas are harder hit than others, we know. So locking down everything like we did earlier is probably not the right approach. Targeting where we think the cases are coming from. So we have, I mean, you can, you can close gyms and movie theaters, but if that's not where the cases are coming from, that's not going to be helpful, right? So uh, I think having more uh, contract tracing and evidence of where the cases are coming from and what is leading to the spikes, targeting your uh, sort of interventions there, and then using the interventions more as like a hammer approach to bring it down to uh, sort of manageable levels, not necessarily uh, thinking that the lockdown is going to bring it down to zero and then keep it there because it's impractical to have a prolonged uh, lockdown uh, for all the reasons that we mentioned. In the hospitals that you've been working at, Alex, how have you found, uh, especially in light of these numbers over the past couple of weeks, where the the resources have been and also the efficiency of just being able to test such a high volume of people on a daily basis, how do you think that's been managed compared to earlier in the pandemic? We're better at testing. So our testing has gotten better. We're able to handle more testing in-house. So the results are coming back a lot faster. Um, I think there's more. So the first wave, I think, uh, if you're looking at it on the part of healthcare workers, so, so nurses, RTs, uh, physicians mainly, and, and other people that work in the hospital, uh, I think the first time around, we didn't know much about it. We were afraid for our own safety. We were afraid about PPE availability. That's far less of a concern. I think we've been with the virus long enough to know that our PPE is effective and that we do have an abundant supply. But now you're getting into basically uh, fatigue in terms of the uh, mental stress and physical stress of dealing with so many sick patients for a prolonged period of time. Uh, I think it's just taking its toll on everybody who's who's been managing these patients. So we're starting to see more and more people that are are perhaps calling in sick to work uh, for various reasons. Uh, a lot of times their kids are in school, for instance. Uh, my, my son is in school and, and had a bit of a stuffy nose. I don't think he has COVID. He probably just has a, a viral uh, infection like the common cold. But I couldn't go into work for a day or so until we sorted that out. And I think that's happening everywhere. So it's leading, you know, where that wasn't a concern back then. Now, because of children in school and things like that, we're starting to see more and more absences and more and more strain on people. So we're, we're certainly working harder than we have been. And, and I know going into the weekend, for instance, we were, we're looking at a big nursing shortage for various reasons. Um, well, it's been tough. It's It's been tough. And I think in the first way, we started to see a bit of an end in sight because we saw that as this went on a couple of weeks, the case will start to come down here. It looks like it's just going to keep going and going and going. And we don't really see the end in sight. So I think that's making it uh, harder and harder for people to, to sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel right now. And, what what sorts of things I guess do I I don't know who whose really role it is is it like the government's role is it perhaps um the infrastructure at the hospitals roles to make sure that these healthcare workers even people such as yourself are are taken care of are there backup contingency plans in the event that this thing doesn't slow down and things are way too full and people continue to get stressed out uh, or you know uh, healthcare workers continue to get to get sick. Like, how, how how many contingencies are there in place to protect the people that are taking care of uh, the people that are actually infected? So, you know, they don't do a bad job. I mean, we, we all, all departments have backup schedules. So we have somebody available. So we're not, uh, you know, hunting for people at the last minute. Um, in terms of beds, we know that certain hospitals, like the one I work at, is going to be particularly hard hit. There are other regions, uh, you know, for instance, massive hospitals in Thunder Bay that have... Uh, 
virtually no COVID. So we're doing a good job of transferring patients right now that, that between hospitals and everyone's been very accommodating at taking patients um, during this time. So we're trying to sort of spread out the caseload a little bit more to not overwhelm any one place. Uh, some of the issues around nurses and, and nursing staff issues are, are going to remain just because they're a limited resource and a lot of nurses work at, at multiple sites and things like that. So, you know, I think they're doing the best they can. Um, the coordinated effort between sort of the Ontario hospitals to transfer patients has really helped to, to not overwhelm any one site. And I think that's a lot more robust than it was before, just because we've had time to sort of perfect the system, if you will, to, to get it better working. Um. I, you know, Ontario has like recently announced maybe a, a new set of safety measures and Toronto actually going maybe even a, a step further from what Ontario is, is recommending. How do you feel like our governments uh, in this part of the world have handled this latest wave? So I think, you know, in part of the Ontario government, I think the initial response from, from at least, you know, Doug Ford and the, the premiers were were better. And I, I, you know, I think more lately, they've been more lax. They were certainly much more keen to open up things. Um, I think, you know, one of the health ministers come out strong, our local in Peel, for instance, the, the local health ministers come out imposing a stronger set of restrictions as they did in Toronto than what was recommended by the provincial government. So I do think that the provincial government could do a better job of stepping up and, and, uh, initiating stronger measures. Um, I think some of the more local leaders are doing a good job of uh, stepping in and saying, hey, like, we don't agree with what's going on. Our, our caseload here is just spiking, you know, opening up restaurants doesn't really make sense right now. Um, so I think, you know, there are some checks and balances, but I think on the whole, the provincial government uh, could do a better job of uh, trying to lock this down, um, you know, by their own measure, they were saying earlier, we were expecting 1500 cases a day, and and now they're up to 6000. So I think, you know, that's got to resonate with them and say that something's gone wrong here. When you look down at, at the US's numbers, and they just keep escalating and escalating, and granted that, you know, we are going into these, these colder months uh, that you've mentioned, they have Thanksgiving coming up in a couple of weeks, we have Christmas holidays, is there a fear that, you know, we, we don't know what rock bottom is going to be, uh, but it just seems that uh, save for a vaccine coming out, like it just seems that we don't know what the peak of this is going to be because you look at these charts, it's staggering what these numbers are versus what the, the worst case scenario was laid out as six months ago. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can look at Europe and Belgium. They, they for instance, are, are completely overwhelmed and they're getting doctors and nurses there. COVID positive who don't, have, who don't have symptoms that are that bad to come back to work. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're not there yet in Ontario, the U.S., but when the U.S. has 150,000 cases like they did today, which I think their new record, um, it, it's going to be a tough situation. You know, obviously, Thanksgiving coming up in the U.S., uh, Christmas holidays, there's other, you know, Hanukkah, Diwali, there's a lot of different holidays that come in and around this time of year. And uh, those all promote large, in, you know, indoor gatherings. And that's really been the driving point. So I think, you know, you know, there's got to be more of a restriction on that. You know, they've got to cut down on weddings and parties and all this kind of stuff and really limit people. Um, I think at this point, to be honest, if you live in a region in Ontario or the U.S. where you have a significant caseload, you shouldn't be going into anyone's house. That uh, Unless you live in that roof, you shouldn't be going into the house. What, what are the countries or the communities right now that you think are setting the best example of, of uh, how they're handling all this? <laughs> Well, I mean, Australia, New Zealand did a good job. Korea's done a really good job. Um, you know, Japan has done a reasonable job of trying to to hammer every time they get spikes up. So there are some examples. Of, you know, Europe, Canada, and Canada had been doing better, is doing a little worse now, even uh, in other 
provinces um, in the U.S. are all kind of lagging behind, I think. So those would be some of the examples. There's, there's other countries, too, but those are the ones that come to mind as having done a, a good job of, of uh, really trying to keep the levels as low as they can. And, and are there things that those particular countries might be doing that, for instance, Canada isn't doing? I mean, there's more of an acceptance of mask wearing in some of those countries, uh, especially like the the in Korea, for instance. Um, there were tougher restrictions imposed, and they were were kept for a longer period of time. Um, there's less sort of propensity for the indoor gatherings and things like that. On some of them, you could argue, like New Zealand, Australia, it's it's an island, so you're not going to get many people in. Whereas here, we do still have some immigration that comes in more more frequently. Uh, even though you know the the border to the U.S. is technically closed, but you can still come in from the U.S. or from other countries. So. They have some advantages, but I think on the whole, you know, we were doing a really good job here in the first wave. So I think it's just been uh, a little bit of laxity with the numbers falling and in, in a uh, delay in getting back to where we were the first time. If you keep going in, in this direction, Alex, so like we talk about the, like the role that, that government plays, and it seems to be like this, this delicate handling of it that people are being encouraged, but we're not putting that, that strong line in the sand of you can do this, you cannot do this, and being more hardline about things. Are we, is that something that almost needs to be done at this point where I think that there's frustration on citizens that feel, hey, I'm doing a lot, but it's not enough. And that is where I think the, the, the source of frustration comes from people that they are giving up things and it's not, it's not enough. Like it almost needs to be, you need to be forced into making significant alterations here. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, there, there's a lot of people doing the best that they can and they're just seeing the numbers go up around them and they're saying, well, more can I do? Like, I already yeah. don't do anything. And I think, you know, I really do think the, the biggest driver of this is we, we've seen so far based on the limited contact tracing, they stopped doing that a while ago, but they've restarted uh, just because they were overwhelmed, is that it's large indoor gatherings. So I think that has to be the target spot. Like, you've got to stop letting people have weddings, letting them congregate for religious functions, letting them have uh, sort of larger indoor parties or anything. I know they're trying, but I think that's really got to be the focus. Um, and you've got to be harsh with the penalties if people violate this, because that is the primary driver of these. I mean, if you look at some of the models that people have released at times, you can see how even, you know, having a, one soccer game, I think, led to 80 outbreaks. So this is the kind of stuff that you have to avoid doing, is, is getting together in large groups of people, uh, especially those that are not in your household. Have you learned anything um, different about um, reinfection, you know, since maybe the last time we spoke? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the antibodies, we, we mentioned earlier, we, we thought there was some, you know, short-term immunity, and that, that's largely been true. Um, there's been some reports of people getting reinfected minimal amounts after about, you know, nine months where their antibody levels did drop. We haven't done large-scale testing on people, but uh, it does appear that that there may be, at least in some people, a drop-off in immunity after about nine months where the antibody levels can fall and they can, uh, you know, not just swab positive, but actually redevelop the infection both clinically and uh, radiographically and, uh, you know, biochemically. So I guess one of the big news items this week, uh, maybe the biggest, was uh, Pfizer that put out uh, early data that suggested that the vaccine that they are developing uh, at least through this stage, showed a 90% effective rate. Um, is this is this uncommon that something this early in the trial period, they're touting results like this? I'm kind of curious just how um, the medical community has responded to this. And because for the average citizen, this is looking at as the light at the end of the tunnel. Should we be viewing it as such? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly encouraging. Um, the medical community, by and large, 
wants to see the numbers, right? We want to see the data. We want to see the published report. We just don't want to see the, oh, you know, we had the 90% um, decrease in infection rate. Now, I'll tell you the reason why. If you look at the the report, there are about 43,000 people and they waited for a while. They're initially supposed to report in October, but they needed enough COVID cases to have some data and ended up, uh, I think, reporting about 93 or 94 people that had COVID. And they said there was a 90% um, drop off in the, the arm that was vaccinated versus the arm that wasn't. So, you know, maybe there were like eight in one group and 89 in the other, whatever the numbers are. Um, but what we really need to know is two things. Number one, we have to make sure that we know that the groups were, were similar, right? So if one group was older and more prone to infection versus the other, uh, that could bias the result. But the main thing is we don't know the clinical outcome of these people. So we know that for the vast majority of people, COVID will be a milder illness. We know anywhere from 10 to maybe 15% on the upper end will be admitted to hospital. And, you know, about in half of that or about 5% will end up in ICU and about two thirds of those will, will pass away. So on the whole, if you look at it, about 10% are going to get sick enough to get into hospital. Well, if the trial is, if the data comes out and, and you know, we prevent uh, all the sick infections, that would be great. But what we don't know is the nine or 10 people that, or the 10% that got the infection, even in the arm that was given the vaccine, what were those? Were those still serious cases? Or were those just mild cases? Because if the vaccine is preventing mild and asymptomatic cases, then we're going to say, well, that that's fine, but that's not really the ones we're interested in, right? I mean, if we all get COVID and it's asymptomatic, we're not going to care that much. If it's a mild symptom, we're not going to care that much. But if it's really preventing the ones from getting sick and getting in hospital and, and dying, that's really what we care about. So, mm-hmm. you know, if they release the numbers and despite having a 90% less infection rate, your numbers of hospitalization are similar, your numbers of death are similar, then you know all it did was prevent the mild cases, that 90% that are mild anyway, and it didn't prevent the 10% that were serious. We're hoping that's not the case and it prevents the serious ones, but that's why we really need to look at the numbers before we uh, sort of anoint this um, as the be all and end all of the end of the the coronavirus. That being said, you know, of course it's promising. Uh, I just think me and a lot of other people that are in the field want to see the numbers, want to see the data, want to know the outcomes of these people um, before we move uh, forward too much more with uh, joy about this. Provided everything you know, not even about necessarily this particular vaccine, but say some vaccine in the future, um, we get to the stage where they announce 90%, whatever, whatever. Um, How much time from the public getting this news at this point to the public actually receiving the vaccine do you think there will be? I mean, I think they're going to rush it, right? I mean, they're going to rush it beyond any other vaccine that we've seen in, in our lifetime. Uh, this is a phase three trial, which means it's 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 not the the final study, but it's it would if it goes through phase three trials would then be approved by the FDA, and then you need to distribute it. This particular vaccine, the Pfizer one, and most of the ones being developed need to be kept really cold, like 150 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 150 Fahrenheit. So it, the distribution of it is going to be tricky. It's not distributed like you know in your fridge, so they're going to have to be you know, difficult distribution. There's obviously going to be a massive amount of people that want it right away. You know, the government is likely going to prioritize giving it to high-risk groups, healthcare workers, the elderly um, groups that are more likely to get sick, I think, and then uh, trickle-down effect. Um, you know, it's going to be very difficult to manage it. Even right now, I don't, I don't know about you guys, I'm getting a flu shot, but I've heard from from friends that, that, you know, aren't in the healthcare field that getting it through your family doctor pharmacy has been challenging. You can imagine if this vaccine comes out and it needs to be kept very cold, which means it's not going to be available just at your family doctor's office. It's going to be even trickier. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would caution people that, you know, it's encouraging. Let's hope that, you know, when the data is released and we can look at it, that it is preventing serious infection. There does. Let's hope that there are no serious side effects and that, you know, realistically in a few months, I think would be the soonest that, that we 
could start to see the rollout if all that is true. You know, I, I would think next year at some point, hopefully we get the vaccine if, if this trial uh, is, uh, you know, as positive as you think. There are other studies. There was a smaller uh, Russian one which came out, which was also positive. There are other options too. There's one in Canada that's in phase two and three trials. So hopefully something pans out within the next uh, 12 months. But, um, you know, we're not going to be getting this, uh, you know, within a month or two. It's, it's just not there yet. I wanted to talk a little bit about just some of your own observations of where the how the major wrestling promotions have re- responded. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about these surging numbers in the states, and yet we're looking at you know AEW has slowly rolled out uh, having fans at, at their events, a limited number, but nonetheless, it was around a thousand for the pay per view last weekend. Uh, WWE has been doing it at the Performance Center with a limited number of fans as well. Um, you know, and then we have, you know, extreme cases like the collective that happened last month that I think, you know, a lot of people were concerned about going in and the after effects, I think, justified those concerns as well. Um, you know, where kind of you understanding, you know, professional wrestling and like how no one's going to say this is uh, this is a safe uh, measure. But in terms of the risk factor, how significant a risk is this? Uh, in inviting fans, uh, given the circumstances that these companies uh, are testing, but nonetheless, they are now bringing fans into the equation as well. Yeah, I mean, like the, the, I think they're doing a reasonable job of testing the performers. I mean, every time a positive test comes out, uh, people view it as a negative. I don't personally view it as a negative. I view it as a system being able to catch someone who's, yes. who's got the disease and would have spread it otherwise. So I think, just think it's good every time they, they're able to catch a positive test and, and isolate that person before they spread it. That, that That's a good thing that they're doing. Um, the fans are a bit more tricky because obviously you're not going to test all the fans before they come in the building. You can use fever and other surrogates, but those are not perfect. Uh, a lot of times the fans, I think, are wearing masks. Sometimes they're not. Um, they seem to be a little segregated. We'll have to see how it goes. I mean, um, you know, I, ideally we wouldn't have a lot of fans in large indoor settings. I know AEW, I don't follow Dynamite every week, but I know some of them are outdoors, although some of them are indoors. So obviously the outdoors would be better. Um, but if you're indoors in a small arena and you have a bunch of fans sitting around, it's not going to be a good idea. We know that's one of the ways that it spreads, um, you know, even with masks on, masks do come off to eat and talk and things like that. So it's not going to be a perfect system. That being said, you know, I, I don't want to condemn the wrestling companies that much. When you look at what happened in Major League Baseball, uh, allowing a player, you know, to play a game, test positive, and then come back out and celebrate with his teammates, like, like you've got to say that none of the wrestling promotions are doing anything like that. So I no. think by and large, um, you know, they've, they're much better at it now than they were. I think the last time we spoke and, and I don't even think the WWE was testing back then. Uh, now they've all kind of taken it more seriously in our testing. So I think that is a positive sign, but um, you know, with the fans, we'll just have to wait and see. Hopefully they take measures by keeping them more masked, keeping them more separated and, and trying to do it more outdoors. But, you know, I guess the proof will be in, in what happens going forward. I'm, I'm curious to know your opinion on maybe some of the uh, technological um, aids that, um, people have been using to try to combat this in Ontario. We of course have something called the COVID app, which I've used and I've have, I've received like, um, alerts for to tell me to go and get tested because I've been near somebody, uh, who, you know, over the past, uh, two weeks tested positive and it's all like pretty private. Like not much information is given. Uh, just the fact that somewhere in the vicinity of the last two weeks, you were near somebody who tested positive. How effective do you think the app is? Um, how many people are using it right now? And how can the system be improved? Well, I think the, the app is great. I mean, I was one of the big proponents uh, of the app and I actually talked to people when we were first rolling it out. Um, 
the app is amazing. Uh, it basically, for those that don't know, it, it'll use your it uses your Bluetooth and not your GPS to identify anyone in a Bluetooth area around you. Uh, if somebody does test positive or you test positive, it, it, you can kind of input that and then people that have been around you uh, will tell you. Now, uh, in Canada, I think we're up to about 5 million downloads or something. So uh, 5 million downloads and I think uh, maybe about 4,000 cases or so have been identified through this. Uh, so that that's really good. I think it's great. I think that that's kind of what we need to be doing in terms of uh, contract tracing the government has already said that they can't do contract tracing just because of the sheer numbers the way they used to. This is a, a sort of poor man's way of contact tracing. If you've been around somebody within a, a sort of Bluetooth radius of someone who tested positive, it's possible you have it. I mean, it could have been anything. It could have been you both had masks on and you were outside and really the risks is minimal. Or it could have been somebody you were at an indoor you know, event with and the risk is high. That part we don't know. But you know, you do know that you were exposed to somebody. It's not going to be every day that that happens. And I think if you do get exposed, then it's, it's reasonable to get yourself tested, um, especially if you, you know, have any inkling of, of symptoms or anything like that. So um, I think the app, the more people that use the app, the more people that have it, the, the better it's going to be. I encourage everybody who uh, has access to this to, to download the app and, and use it. It does not use GPS and, you know, send the government uh, data about where you're hanging out or anything like that. So don't be concerned. It's using Bluetooth technology just to identify people around you. Uh, my last question, and then we, we do have a few questions from the, the forum uh, that want to ask you. Uh, but just as you have seen, like going back to March, where I would imagine the day-to-day of patients that you were seeing, there's probably a lot of panic that was at a 10. Have you seen that somewhat subside, that COVID has kind of been accepted as it's part of our day-to-day lives? Like what are some of the trends you've seen just in day-to-day patients and how they are kind of handling COVID? I guess that's obviously going to differ, but have you seen like an overall, uh, like it's subsided a bit from where people were so afraid of the unknown in March and now we're like, this is just how we live our lives now. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, when we get patients admitted back in March, we were getting calls, uh, you know, families weren't allowed in, so we'd have to call them. Uh, They would go through on the phone with me everything they'd read on the internet, you know, um, even stuff that the president would tweet out, right? Does, um, you know, hydroxychloroquine work? Does convalescent plasma work? Does remdesivir work? Anything that was out there. Uh, Nowadays, we're not getting that as much. I think people know that, you know, the, the therapies that were being touted before really aren't doing much. Most people know that, uh, in the hospital, at least we're providing the best therapy and, and, and we do know what works now a little better. Um, most people are aware of COVID and understand that people get sick from this. So when you're calling them and oftentimes we're calling and saying, hey, your loved one's in hospital. Hey, your loved one's getting worse. They're going to the ICU. Uh, hey, your loved one's now on a ventilator. Uh, th- those calls are, are, are not requiring, you know, at, before we would have to talk for a long time about people because they didn't understand what was happening and, and what was going on and what we're doing. Everything. Now I think people understand that you know, we're not ventilating people unless they absolutely need it. Um, and we're not doing things like that until you get to that stage. So I think people are more understanding of the disease process and understand what how it happens and how how the disease process uh, can escalate. They understand that the, the treatments are being done. And, and I think there's less fear in general that we're doing the wrong thing or we don't know what we're doing or we're missing things. I think more people now have faith that the, the medical system is doing the best they can with this and that we have some knowledge of what we're treating. Uh, unfortunately, we still have bad outcomes, though. We want to right now uh, go to some of the questions that we uh, posted uh, or uh, some patrons posted up there on the forums. And uh, the first one comes from uh, Ryan, who says, if the U.S. had discussed a four to six week lockdown, he asked what would be the best option for public health in terms of who and how it could be broken. And he asked this as a grocery store worker 
uh, who during the last lockdown left left home nearly every day to go to work and was exposed to dozens, if not hundreds of people a day. He says people will still need food, especially over that sort of time frame. But if the idea is to stop full stop, what would the best option be? Um, I I think he means like for essential workers, uh, who would be allowed in if a country were to, you know, just say uh, everything is shut down? Yeah, I mean, if you get to the point where you want to do like a hammer approach because the cases are getting out of control, you would limit it to things that you need to survive. So obviously food would be one of them, right? You would need to keep grocery stores open. You would need to um, keep hospitals open. You would need to keep the police force active. Um, you would basically go through a list. And they did this in the Ontario First where, where they come with a list of what are considered essential services. It keeps expanding as they forget about people and somebody emails them going, hey, I'm kind of essential too. So, you know, that list is long, but obviously grocery stores and food would be part of it. Um, the idea that would be shut down non-essential things first that are more likely to cause uh, disease. So areas where you can have large, in, you know, indoor gatherings, gyms, or targeted restaurants, um, or targeted, um, you know, I think religious uh, areas where you get uh, people uh, that are com- uh, congregating together to pray, wedding halls, things like that have to be primary because those are the real large spreaders or the larger indoor gatherings. Um, grocery stores, you know, even if there's an outbreak, you might see two or three people getting, usually they're the employees, you're not saying widespread outbreak to multiple people in a grocery store or Walmart, just because most people are coming in with masks and, and there's more um, social distancing in places like that. And, and most of the stores do a good job of limiting uh, occupancy. So, you know, essential people like yourself, and I, you know, certainly call me you being a grocery store worker, you're, you're just as essential as me or anyone else who's in the hospital. And I thank you for your service. But, um, you know, we would have to keep some of those open, obviously, just to, to let society function and people to eat. Uh, MJ uh, asks about... Uh costs associated with uh, ramping up facilities and capacity, essentially knowing that the second wave was coming, um, you know, preparations that were made ahead of time, knowing that there, there was the, the potential and likelihood of a second wave. And he also wants to know just your thoughts on uh, studies that have shown uh, lockdowns could also increase transmission uh, if there's, uh, I guess, data to support that as well. Well, I mean, so the, the first part of the question uh, about what, what they've done for preparedness, I mean, there's a better hospital response in terms of a, a province-wide response here in Ontario to transfer patients. Uh, Peel recently, which is one of the hardest hit areas, opened up a, a centre where family members can go uh, if somebody's sick at home. And, you know, a large multi-generational family can't social distance. So they have isolation centres where you can go and, and kind of stay and be safe uh, from that family member for a couple of weeks. So those kind of things are starting to pop up to, to try and help. Um, I, I don't think the government thought the second wave would hit this hard and this fast as it did in terms of ramping up. So uh, I think some of the preparedness perhaps uh, could have been better, but, you know, they've tried to do uh, things like that the best they can to, to help out. In terms of the, the lockdown increasing, so lockdown, you know, has been shown to, to perhaps have, have deleterious effects for sure, economically, but also on people's health. There's some studies that look at you know, uh, patients who have rheumatoid disease or, or a disease that affects their joints and their symptoms were worse during the lockdown, uh, mental health, people were, were less likely to see their psychiatrist and less likely to receive treatment for mental health. So those things are certainly a real concern, you know, uh, for anyone who's, who's looked at determinants of health, it's not just physical, there are many determinants of health, including social determinants of health that are going to be affected by this. So um, there's certainly very negative effects of the lockdown. Can the lockdown lead to increase uh, spread? I mean, within the households, it can. If you're spending more of your time indoor with the same people, certainly you're going to get larger outbreaks within the same family. On the whole, though, you're not going to have the large-scale outbreaks. Uh, and, you know, as long as your family is large, you know, multi-generational, lots of people, and you want to protect somebody, if somebody does get sick, you know, there are some areas that have isolation centers where you can you can stay for a couple of weeks to 
to stay away from uh, the infectious period. But um, by and large, you know, uh, the lockdowns are going to, despite acknowledging there might be a small risk that way, going to, uh, by and large, be more effective than the no lockdown in terms of reducing uh, levels, especially where there's widespread uh, transmission. You just briefly kind of touched on this next question, but McGuire wanted to know if there was any research or statistics that have been done to support or refute the claims of, uh, you know, increased suicide rates, domestic abuse and child abuse uh, that have occurred, I guess, as a result of, you know, people uh, uh, having to sit home due to a lockdown. I mean, the child abuse, uh, domestic abuse, I, I don't know offhand. Uh, I intuitively, you, you could postulate if you're spending more time at home and, and you're in close quarters and there's more stressors going on in your life, those things could increase. But again, I don't have any data on that. Uh, certainly, th- there's been very small studies that have looked at this. The, the mental health one looked at, at people that, you know, were seeing their psychiatrists and there's just less compliance with people seeing their psychiatrists and therefore uh, more uh, perhaps burden of mental health disease that was untreated. Uh, the rheumatoid disease looks at, I think it was like 50% increase in, in symptomatology of people who have rheumatoid or joint-based uh, disease. Uh, and even though they were compliant with their medications, their symptoms seem to get worse. Uh, what the reasons are maybe from, uh, we're not exactly sure, but uh, so yeah, th- there is certainly a, you know, some data that support that there are um, worsening things with the lockdown, but um, you know, there isn't sort of widespread data that shows that there are many, many, many negative effects. Some of them, you know, like domestic abuse and that are obviously uh, very serious issues. Um, unfortunately, I just don't have the data on that, but uh, I, I can see why that would be a concern. And the last one is uh, Noah from Vaughn. And we, we kind of touched on this, but if you have any uh, additional thoughts, feel free. Uh, he talks about, as someone that has been wearing my mask, socially distancing, and have not gathered in a large group in eight months, it's been getting really frustrating seeing the cases rising here in Ontario as much as it has the past few weeks. Luckily, nobody I know has gotten it. My question is, is the reason the cases have gone up due to pandemic fatigue? Because after eight months now, it seems that people just don't care about it anymore which I don't know if we can go to, to that extreme that uh, people don't uh, care about it. But I mean, you did list, you know, several of the factors this past past month, Alex, that I, I think contributed to this. And I think people, you know, towards the end of the summer, when we were seeing numbers going down, it was, I, I think there was some false sense of th- that we were somewhat out of the woods when, you know, we were at the same time going into these, you know, fall and winter months where, I mean, this was kind of outlined that this was a possibility. Yeah, for sure. I mean, no, I, you know, I want to congratulate you since you're doing all the right things uh, just for yourself and for everyone around you. So thank you for what you're doing. Um, I, I do think, you know, people do care, I think, but I think John is exactly right. Like we talked about, there was a false sense of security, maybe that the numbers were dropping, that we were going outside and doing more. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm not going to say that I wasn't guilty of that too. I, I did visit a few more friends during that time because numbers were lower, but, you know, I, I think we recognize that as the fall months hit, we were likely going to see an escalation cases. We did probably worse than, than I think most of us thought right away. Um, and I think that's part of it. Part of it is also that there were more larger indoor gatherings around Halloween, around Thanksgiving, around holiday seasons like that. Uh, I think coupled with the fact that there's perhaps a message out there that the disease is not as lethal. So, you know, you'll see a lot of people quote, you know, 99.6% of people survive the disease. Um, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, you know, the disease uh, kills 10 to 20% of people. It does not. It, uh, the number uh, death is probably going to be, you know, under 5% for sure, maybe closer to two or even under two. But when the denominator in terms of the cases gets high, it, that number is very high in terms of the number that can still, you know, get really sick from this. And there's some data that looked in, in Michigan at people that got COVID and ended up in hospital. And they followed about, uh, about almost 500 of these people. And almost like 
30 to 40 percent uh, of them still had lingering symptoms after they were hospitalized, still had, you know, shortness of breath, loss of taste of smell, uh, some had mental health issues. So there were a lot of long term effects, even in those who are hospitalized, which, you know, we know can be as high as 10 percent. And of course, they're going to be, you know, that 5 percent that end up in ICU and, and maybe, you know, 2 to 3 percent that even pass away. And, you know, I'll be honest, there are people in my ICU that are under the age of 40. Um, there's one under the age of 20 I mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of young people that are healthy that have no other health problems that are getting sick from this uh, because it just has to hit a few people and, and those people will get sick. And, you know, those are real people, even though that number may not be high, that, that's a real person. So it's something to keep in mind anytime you, you, you sort of look at numbers and say, oh, the number doesn't seem that high. Just multiply it out by 150,000 cases if you're in the U.S. a day and, and see how many that, that actually leads to in terms of death. And you'll see that it's, it's not a trivial amount. My last thing is I'm not so much concerned about this in Canada, but in the U.S. where this is such a it's, – it's sad that it has become such a heightened political issue, COVID. But I do worry about the vaccine and that if we're talking about 35, 40 percent of the country that doesn't want to take this vaccine, how effective is this vaccine going to be And when we're talking about the largest country in the world? Yeah, so typically for those that are, are not vaccinated, we rely on something called herd immunity. The concept of herd immunity is that if everyone else sort of uh, is vaccinated, doesn't have the disease, it sort of will protect the rest of those that can't. And that's a real concept. It protects people that can't get normal vaccines, maybe because they have an immunodeficiency mm-hmm. or, or some other reason that they can't get it. And they're relying on the rest of us to take the vaccine to protect them. Um, herd immunity, you know, you're going to need pretty high levels, like you're going to need 60, 70%, some people estimate as high as 80 percent of the population to be vaccinated before that takes effect. So if your levels are below that and you're, you know, 30, 40 percent of people are not taking the vaccine, you're not going to achieve herd immunity and those people are still going to be transmitting the disease around from each other. We also don't know about the vaccine whether this is long-term immunity, right? Like yeah. for influenza, we know you need to get a new influenza vaccine every year because it sort of confers different immunity based on the mutations and, and sort of partial immunity uh, otherwise. This could be the same thing. We, we just don't know. We don't know whether this immunity from the vaccine is going to be lifelong or whether it's going to require repeated sort of yearly shots because things change. And if you're getting a large part of the population that doesn't have it, you're never going to be able to achieve, uh, you know, herd immunity and, and just going to keep passing around among those and potentially uh, perpetuate going forward if, if the vaccine is, in fact, not a, a lifelong immunity type of vaccine. Do you have any, uh, like, final messages you want to send to our audience, Alex, before we say goodbye? Well, I think, you know, reading the forms, I think, you know, honestly, readers are a really good group of people. I see uh, some very intelligent conversation, people taking it very seriously. So I do want to just thank everyone on there. I think, by and large, most people there are taking it very seriously, doing a very good job. Um, Please, for people like Noah that are doing those things, keep doing what you're doing. I know it's frustrating to see the numbers rise. Believe me, it's frustrating for me when I wake up in the morning and see that as well. But it's really going to be the only Thing that you as an individual can do to help this problem uh, is to try and adhere to these. If you see others doing this that are around you, talk to them and say, look, you know, maybe we shouldn't be getting together, uh, you know, for this upcoming holiday. Maybe we can do it over Zoom. Maybe, you know, we should just kind of stick to our homes. Try and encourage those around you to show the best behavior. And, you know, we're all in this fight together. Um, you know, if you do get sick, don't be afraid to come into the hospital. Um, we've done a very good job of trying to keep people safe here. Uh, despite the, what you hear about outbreaks here and there. But if you need to, to seek out care, please don't don't be scared to come in. And you know, I'm wishing everyone the best of health in these times. And we wish all the best uh, to you, Alex, and to all of your uh, colleagues and coworkers as well that are uh, you know living this every single day and doing uh, an enormous uh, work during this uh, pandemic. So uh, thank you again just for taking this time to chat with our listeners. Uh, you've 
been invaluable this year to uh, uh, speaking to us and imparting all of your wisdom. No problem. Thank you so much for having me.